Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. This is the second in a two-part series on belief versus trust. What are the reasons for believing and trusting in a power beyond ourselves? And when do we believe in ourselves rather than place our faith in God? So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. back into our very heavy but important and relevant discussion about belief and the sources for our belief. Um, and uh, uh, just to review very briefly from yesterday, um, to just review, we talked about believing in God externally by looking at two things in the world. And a lot of people actually come to believe in God by looking at these two things. Number one, nature and science, and observing the sophisticated uh, design of the human anatomy, human biology, physics, chemistry, the galaxies, the solar system. How could all of this come into existence randomly? And that's what we call the teleological approach. And then we discussed uh, the argument from Jewish history. The argument from Jewish history, which is looking at all of these different Ah, cannot hear me? Who cannot hear me? Scott, you cannot hear me. Why is that? I'm in a computer, not Pat. I can hear you, okay? Um, Scott, cannot hear me. Amy, why can you not hear me? This is weird. Hold on, let me try. I'm going to try this. Tell me right now if you can hear me now. Uh, Don't change my settings, okay. Uh, Benjamin, tell me now, okay, if you can hear me now. Okay, Art, thank you, you can hear me. Uh, Azmi, who's coming in from Russia, got a big thumbs up. Hey, Tom Weiss, audio is good. Okay, excellent, thank you guys, I appreciate it. One person says they can't hear me, and I think everybody can hear me. Um, okay, fine, great, Jeff Koblenz, my, my friend, thank you so much. So we discussed the uh, argument from Jewish history yesterday, And I'm just going to finish up this section by quoting from the great Mark Twain, a famous quote that I did not quote yesterday, and I found it, and I figured I would just start off our class with it and then move on to the next aspect. Mark Twain in 1897 wrote, and I quote, hey, Rabbi Ezra, I want to thank Rabbi Ezra for an amazing, amazing class, uh, panel discussion that he put together for last night. with Mark Goldman and with Brooke, the matchmaker. Uh, It was really, really helpful, beautifully attended. Thank you all for joining, if any of you guys saw it last night. And if you didn't, the beauty of Facebook Live, uh, it was be live, but on Facebook, is that you can just scroll down and watch it uh, anytime today if you would like. I want to thank Benjamin Cohn for hosting it as well. Mark Twain in 1897 said, and I quote, If the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Nobody wrote like Twain. Properly, the Jew ought ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He's as prominent on the planet as any other people. He has made a marvelous fight in this world in all the ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff, and passed away. 
The Greek and the Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burnt out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret to his immortality? Unbelievable quote. What is this um, quote really teaching? He asks the question, he ends the beautiful passage by asking a question, what is the secret to his immortality? Because the Egyptian and the Assyrian and the Babylonian and the Greek and the Persian, they all came and went, but they are sitting in twilight. Uh, as someone one else said, the dustpins of history, but the Jew continues to be there. I remember years ago visiting the Arch of Titus in Rome, and you see engraved on this arch, created by Titus, who's mentioned numerous times in the Talmud, Titus HaRasha, they call him. Uh, the rabbis called him Titus, the evil person, because he was the one who destroyed the second temple. And when he came back and he brought Jewish slaves back with him to Italy from Israel, he created this arch to basically glorify and celebrate the Roman uh, conquest and vanquishing of the Jewish temple by engraving on that stone that people from all over the world come and see, Roman legionnaires carrying off the vessels from the Jewish temple. And you watch him, it's a little depressing. And then you turn a little to the right. And I've shared this before, and you see spray painted onto the wall, Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people are alive. Some Israeli tourists must have passed by, looked at the Arch of Titus and say, hey, the Roman Empire is no longer here, but the Jewish people, we've got a state, we've got Israel, we've got Jews all over the world, the Jewish community is thriving. Why are we celebrating the Roman you know, legionnaires' conquest over the temple? The Romans are gone. There's a country called Italy. It has nothing to do with the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, but the Jewish people were still around. And that was, um, that was um, Mark Twain's observation. And that's one of the great arguments for belief in a higher being, and that is the continued existence of the Jewish people against all odds. And that is the second way of looking at God from without. God out there, look at science, look at nature, look at human anatomy, look at history out there. But then there's this faith from within. And there's this belief that the Kabbalists go to town on that even the irreligious Jew has as much faith, can have as much faith in God as a religious Jew because it's within us. It's in the soul that each and every one of us possess. It's something your soul experienced even before it came into this world. Your soul has experienced something limitless. And the soul saw this impression even before it comes into the body, which is finite. And therefore we can't always grasp everything about the soul, but it's there. And there's a beautiful passage in the Talmud that I want to share with you. I want to welcome my brother who's tuning in right now. And the passage in the Talmud says something very, very powerful. There's an angel. And according to Jewish tradition, we do believe actually in angels. And then there's an angel called Lila. Lila technically means night, but it's the name of the angel that's assigned to pregnancy. Every angel has one job, and the job of Lila is to take care of pregnant women. And the Talmud says that this angel, Layla, 
is teaching. Um, the Talmud, uh, I'm sorry, Amy, that you cannot hear, but apparently it must be a problem with your device because everyone else seems to be able to, to hear. Um, uh, Stephanie Brooks, does, this, does the Talmud or Torah speak about the soul and reincarnation? Yes, it does. Uh, it, still, it speaks more about the soul, not as much about reincarnation, but there are other Torah sources, rabbinic sources that speak about reincarnation. Anyway, um, the Talmud then says that uh, this angel Layla is, teaches the baby in utero for the nine months of pregnancy, the entire Torah from beginning to end. And then when the baby is ready to come out, when the mother is ready to give birth, the angel gives a little flick on the top lip of the baby, causing the child to forget all of the Torah that it has studied. And then the baby comes out like babies come out without any knowledge or information at all. It's kind of a strange Gemara. Uh, I remember when uh, Jill, my wife, was pregnant with one of my kids and I asked, when they were doing a sonogram, I asked the nurse if they could keep moving that thing around on Jill's belly so that I could see the angel teaching my son Torah. And the nurse then asked me to step out of the room because I think I freaked her out. But whether or not you believe there's actual angel in there, there isn't an angel in there, what is this passage in the Talmud teaching? And Rabbi Salvechik says, and he asked the question, what's the whole point of the baby being taught the Torah from beginning to end if at the end of this whole exercise, the uh, angel is just going to give a little flick on the top lip? And what's going to happen then? Eddie Zarabi, welcome, my friend. Thank you for joining if the angel is going to give a little flick on the top lip, causing the baby to forget all of the Torah that it studied, why this exercise in futility? What was the whole point of teaching the Torah, all of this Torah to the child for nine months, if the angel is going to cause the child to lose and forget all that Torah anyway? And Rabbi Salvechik famously answers that it is to teach parents, and I would also argue teachers, that when you teach a child Torah, it's not as though you're imposing some new or foreign ideology on a child with which the kid has no familiarity. The child already has some sort of connection. I always think when I have a little deja vu, you ever get like deja vu and you like, you're in some place and you kind of think you were there before? I don't know, maybe that's the angel that spent all that time before you were born teaching you Torah and then causing you to forget it at the end. And Rav Salvechik says so poetically, he writes, that teaching a child Torah is like an amnesia victim trying to put back together the fragments, the fragments of one's memory that have been lost. Learning Torah is coming back to your true self. It's not like you're this person, you have no connection with Judaism, and now your parents have to sort of like ram it down your throat. Your parents have to somehow present it in a way that you're going to find appealing because you have no connection with it. No, you have a connection. And that's what the Talmud is teaching, whether you take that literally or not, that there's an angel teaching the baby Torah in utero for nine months, or you don't take it literally. What it's trying to teach is that you're coming into the world already familiar and connected because you're coming into the world with a soul. Your soul, we believe, is an expression of God. There's a big debate. Is it mamish, actually a part of God? The Torah says that God breathed the soul into man. 
and that each and every one of us, by virtue of being a human being, we possess this soul. And God has endowed all of mankind, all of humankind, with something from God, a spark, if you will, of Hashem. So it's, so it's not just that our soul experienced God before coming into the body. The soul is actually a part of God or a reflection of God, and it's a part of us. And therefore, if you can tap into that soul, you'll be able to sense and have a real emuna, a faith in Hashem. And it's not a cognitive or an intellectual thing. It's just like a part of you. It's like saying, you know, and denying God, therefore, according to this approach, is like saying, I don't have a left arm. Now, Baruch Hashem, I've got this left arm right here. Now, somebody can come over and say, I'm sorry, Mark, but that's, that left arm is just a figment of your imagination. What are you talking about? I know it's here. Now, I can see it. It's a physical, finite thing, and the soul is not. But that's what our belief is. And that's another way, really, of understanding that we come into this world already with a connection to Hashem. We just need to tap into it. Now, the $10 billion question is, of course, how do you tap into the soul? And the answer is, of course, through the Torah. The Torah was that guidebook that was given to us as a way of accessing the soul and being connected to Hashem through what we already have. Uh, one of my uh, friends and teachers, Rabbi David Aaron, likes to think of it like a radio. I never thought about this and I was a kid. Um, nobody uses radios anymore, but you put on a radio and then you, yeah, some people do and listen to different radio stations in the car. You put on the radio and you've got the antenna and the radio itself has certain, you know, things in it that pick up a frequency Right? And, then, and that allows you to be connected. And that's sort of like the soul within us. And then you have the Torah. So the soul is sort of like the radio within us. And then the, uh, I'm going to kill this whole analogy, but you get a little, uh, and then you put on the radio. How do you put it on? You put on the soul through the Torah, through the mitzvot, 613 commandments, 248 of which are positive mitzvot. Each of those mitzvot the Kabbalists teach enable the soul to, to draw closer to its divine source, to God himself. And 365 negative mitzvot, things that we stay away from that we believe can distance us from God. It's all about either getting closer to Hashem or, God forbid, distancing ourselves away from Hashem. And if anybody wants to get and to do a, digger, a, a deeper dig into this issue, and how the soul specifically operates with the Torah to be drawn closer to Hashem, my suggestion is to get the book of the Tanya and to read it. And a great English translation, I have it. Yosef, can you do me a favor? Can you just grab me the Tanya there? I want to show everybody the book. Uh, my son Yosef, who's just doing some work here in the room. Thanks, my friend. Um, this is the book, and it's um, you can really just... Read this on your own. Um, it's, it's, it's written by a friend of mine, a colleague, Rabbi Chaim Miller, who's an unbelievable scholar. And, um, and he takes apart all the words of the Tanya. The Tanya was written by the first Lubavitch Rebbe in the 1700s. And um, he was a great rabbinic scholar. And it's all in English. And it's translated and commentaries to really be able to explain the book. 
and it's called The Practical Tanya. I should get a 10% cut here because I'm really pushing this book, but this is a really, really great book to get. Um, let me take some questions. Jeff Koblen says, The angel teaching Torah that touches the upper lip have a specific name. Yeah, Layla. Lamed Yud Lamed Aleph. Layla. Same angel you mentioned before for pregnancy. Yes, that's the name of the angel, Layla. Good question, Jeff. Um, hey, Steph, uh, hey, Sarah Green. <laughs> yes, Sarah's mentioning a very, very important point that we do believe in. There's a little of a debate on this. Uh, is the soul that we have like a spark of God? Is it a piece of God? The Balatanya believes it's mamish, that the soul we have within us, just like a candle. It's hard to think of this in physical finite terms, but you take a candle. How many other candles can you light from one candle? A lot. And it doesn't seem to diminish the light. When you take a candle and you take another wick and put it in the candle, it gets lit and the other one still stays lit. So God is sort of the candle and he lights all these other sparks, if you will, in other people. So the Balatanya believes that Hashem is, right? And there's a part of us that is God. Now, some other great rabbis have a problem with that. How could it be that we are God? We're separate from God. It can't be that we're attached to God. So there's a little bit, de- uh, not a little, a big debate about that as well. Um, and I am, Stephanie, very well acquainted with the Garden of Amuna. We have them all at MJE. Um, okay, so that is sort of believing in God from within. And I want to take that and develop the next part of our discussion that I said yesterday I would get into, which is, okay, let's say you believe in God, Jewish history, science, nature, you sense that there's a spiritual part of you, and um, when you study Torah, you're coming back to who you really are, and by the way, that's why they call people who come back to Judaism a Baal Tshuva. What, what's a Baal Tshuva? A Baal Tshuva is somebody who returns. Wait, I don't get it. Someone who returns to Judaism? Someone wasn't raised to observe the Sabbath, and then they start keeping Shabbos. We call them a Baal Tshuva. They, they're, they're returning to Judaism. Return implies you were once there. I just told you this person wasn't raised in observance. This person wasn't raised to keep kosher, to observe Shabbat. They start keeping kosher. They start observing Shabbat. And now you say they've returned. Return to what? They never did this. They're returning to who they really are because we believe metaphysically and existentially because we have a soul within us, we just need to tap into it. It's already there. Uh, There are other indications of this as well. Um, and which is why one of my teachers, Rabbi Riskin, used to say that um, the job of a good teacher is not to mold, but to extract. See, to mold implies that the child has really nothing there. The child comes in tabula rosa, zero. And your job as a teacher, the child doesn't know this, the child doesn't know that. You have to kind of just get the kid to learn all this information and mold like a piece of clay. Whereas to extract implies that the child already has something. The child is already coming to the table with something. Now you'd be like, what does a baby come to the table with? Nothing. A baby, as Freud said, is like the most egocentric, self-absorbed being you can know. But the Torah says that that baby has a neshama. That baby has a soul. And the job of a parent and a good teacher is to try to bring out what already exists. Of course, even... According to this approach, you still need to teach the child new information that it doesn't know. But there's this belief that there's something there. And that's a very different sort of pedagogical perspective on how to educate a child. And I think it's very empowering. 
and I think children and adults, I try as much as I can when I speak to my students uh, to, to understand that I'm talking to people that have within them great, something great already. And it may not be the formalized kind of wisdom that somebody who's been studying Torah all their life has, but there's something deep and metaphysical that exists that is my job as a teacher to tap into. And it's all of our jobs as growing beings to tap into what already exists within us. Now, the next step though, is to have a little faith. Not just faith in God, the belief that there is a God out there, but how do I go from having faith in God to starting to trust in God? We discussed Imuna from without, teleological Jewish history. We discussed Imuna from within, tapping into the belief of God that we already have within us. And this is a very, very difficult thing. Because bitachon, which is the Hebrew word for trust, is much more of a verb than emunah, which is the Hebrew word for faith. Everything we've spoken about so far has to do, is really a noun. Do you believe in God or not? Do you believe that there's something within you called the soul? Do you believe that there's this God out there who orchestrated Jewish history, who's behind the Big Bang? Bitachon is now putting that faith into action. Actually, believing God will handle certain things in our life and starting to place your faith in Hashem. Now, this is very nuanced in Judaism because you might go to certain religions and see that there is a belief of putting all of your faith in Hashem. Uh, some people might call it blind faith. That usually refers to just believing without reason, without, and, and we talked about that yesterday. But how much trust should you place in God's hands and simply let God run your life? Or how much should you do what's called in Hebrew, hishtadlut? Lehishtadel means to, to do, to, to extend effort, to, um, um, to take the initiative. And this is a very, very personal struggle for me since I come from a big hishtadlut kind of family. Right? Some families are a little more chill. They're just like, this is the way things are supposed to be. I'm gonna go with the flow. I don't come from such a family. A little more type A, where we feel we've gotta keep working and working and working and working. And it's not a really a black and white issue as far as Judaism is concerned. Because on one hand, we do not believe simply in placing all of our faith in God. Story of the guy, you know, gets shipwrecked And he's on this beautiful cruise liner and he gets thrown off the boat. And all of a sudden, and he's, he can't swim and he's starting to drown. And all of a sudden the Coast Guard comes out of nowhere and throws the guy a lifeline. And he says, grab it. And the guy's like, I'm praying to God because I place all my faith in God. And he starts calling out to God, please save me, please save me. And he completely ignores the life vest that the Coast Guard just threw him. And pretty soon the Coast Guard gives up and takes off and the guy's gasping. He's trying to stay afloat and he's praying to God. And out of nowhere, a helicopter shows up and drops a line. And the guy in the helicopter screams, grab it, grab it. And the guy's like, I'm praying to God. I'm putting all my faith in God. And eventually the guy dies. <laughs> and he goes to heaven. And he says to God, I don't understand. How did you let me die? It was such a, 
I was such a good Jew. I performed mitzvot. I gave charity. And I put all my faith in you. Why did you let me die? And God, of course, answers, why did I let you die? Dude. I don't know if God says dude, but dude, I sent you the Coast Guard. I sent you a helicopter. So we know that you have to do in life what's called hishtad lutz. You got to grab onto the life jacket. You have to grab onto the helicopter. You don't just blindly believe. On the other hand, we know that some things are just not in our hands. And for those moments, we need what's called bitachon, trust. And if there was any a time in the world where bitachon was really necessary, it's now. Um, <laughs> thank you, Daniel. <laughs> God definitely says, dude, you know, Yosef Atzadik, the great Joseph from the, from the Bible, he kind of personified, or his struggle personified this delicate balance. How much faith do we place in God? How much do we grab onto our own? Because that balance is so key and it's so difficult. Uh, remember what happened to Joseph when he gets thrown into the pit, when the wife of Potiphar makes all of these sexual advances and Yosef gets thrown into the pit and there's a guy asking him for Yosef to interpret his dream and then finally that guy gets taken out of jail and right before he's taken out of jail, Yosef says to him, don't forget me. He was Pharaoh's wine steward. And it implies that he asked one too many times. And according to the rabbis, Joseph, therefore, is punished. And he gets another couple of years in prison because he asked the wine steward not to forget him. Nothing wrong with that. But he asked one too many times. Or maybe he asked twice, I think. I forget exactly what the tradition is. Because you're supposed to place faith in Hashem. Do your shtadlis. And here clearly the shtadlis is he makes a good impression. The guy who's getting out of jail is going to be serving wine to Pharaoh the next day or whenever and put in a good word for me. Of course you have to do that. You're going for the interview and you have a friend who works in the same company. You have to be a fool not to call your friend and say, who do you know in the company you can put in a good word with without looking too uh, transparent here, you know, without it looking too much. Like I have somebody on the inside. You're supposed to do things like that in life. But if you put your faith too much in your own efforts, that's a problem. You put too much of your faith in God, you don't do your own thing. That's a problem too. We work on ourselves to place our faith in Hashem. And when we do that, it creates a channel. And we become a vessel for God, in a sense. And this is very, very difficult and challenging. Uh, I saw this um, from uh, Hannah, one of our educators at MGE. She said, she said the phrase, think positive and be positive. Because once you've opened up that belief that God will help, we believe that God also deals with you in such a manner. Because once you've created yourself into a vessel where God can be manifest in the world, then God is going to be more manifest through you. It's like when you become sensitive to a certain sound or taste. You can start hearing and seeing things that other people cannot. You can actually start tasting certain things, like a wine connoisseur. Never understood that. Well, wine, I, I'm tasting the same wine that this guy is tasting. But because he has developed himself 
and sensitize himself to some of the, the rosé and some of the great fruits and, and smells and taste in the wine that I'm a little oblivious to, he can now enjoy it that much more. And that can cause God's blessing in our lives because we become a greater vessel of godliness. And that's why I'm always, always, because I think in our society, we're always leaning a little more towards the hishtadlut, towards what we do. And by the way, I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from trying as hard as you possibly can in life to get the job, to get the marriage, to get the relationship, to get whatever it is. You put your best foot forward. You never say, well, I believe in God. That's it. Right? We just had a panel on relationship building last night and ideas of people to get out there and date. And it's difficult now. And it's a little awkward sometimes getting on Zoom with someone you've never met. But that's your hashtadlas. But can you control what's going to happen in the next hour with the person? You, can, you can't control the vibe. You can control that if you put on something nice. I didn't quite do that today. I was just working out. You don't, you know, but you... you comb your hair, maybe even come up with one or two ideas of things you want to talk about with this person. That's your hishtadlis. The rest is in Hashem's hands. And that's a really important balance. And, and, and there's no science to this. I can't tell you in any given situation, when does your hishtadlut begin and end? And when does God's chesed start? And that, those are the balance. Chazdei Hashem, God's grace, God's kindness and hishtadlut. Those are the two words I want you to learn for this class. Hishtadlut is human initiative, what you put in, how hard you try. And at some point, and by the way, I'm speaking to me, to myself as I speak to you, because it's something I really struggle with. Once you put your best foot forward, that's when your faith in Hashem starts. And I'm not saying you don't have faith in God before then, but you haven't done your full hishtadlut then. Right? My, I have... Um, my two older sons, Yosef and Ezra, are studying like crazy. They're in reading week. It sort of brought me back to my college days. And just day and night, these guys are studying. I went to bed three in the morning last night studying. I was listening to them. They're taking one of the same courses, same professor. Okay, at some point, like, I did the best I could. The rest is in Hashem's hands. I put my best foot forward. I studied. I went, I got the best degree possible. Uh, under the circumstances, and maybe, by the way, I couldn't get the best, best degree. I couldn't get into Harvard. I tried. I got into Columbia. Not bad, okay? Or I couldn't get into Columbia. I went to City College. City College is a good university, too, right? Your hishtadlis, any of our hishtadlis, is according to our circumstances. And then we then, and, and this is such a, um, a freeing thought, that once you put your best foot forward, you know, I still get nervous, you know, I'm just thinking about this as I'm sharing it with you. I still get nervous when I publicly speak to some degree. But I'll tell you when I get nervous. I don't get nervous before I get up and speak. I get nervous before I start writing the speech. Because I'm always nervous I'm not going to put in my best hishtadlut. And once the speech is written, though, and I'm happy with it, I put it down and I can relax. Even though I haven't given the speech yet. Still a little nervous, but not nearly as nervous because my nervousness comes about my own initiative, because the rest of the stuff I can't control. I can't control, I don't know how I'm gonna be in the moment, you never know, you're feeling different at different times. But I can control what I'm gonna say, what books I'm gonna use to do the research, and stories I'm gonna tell. I didn't, I just did a wedding, 
on Sunday married Noah and Natasha and I was writing out my words. And when I finished writing it out and cutting up and putting on my little note card so I, I can glance down and I don't have the best memory. Then I, 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 I breathed a sigh of relief, a little nervous before I got up there and delivered it, but I already, I already did my work. And I think that's a very, very freeing kind of feeling. Now, I wanna go back to bitachon <clears throat> a little in terms of trust. If God is completely infinite, then we create the same effect without the hurt. It's one of the reasons we daven. Just follow this for a minute. You're creating change within yourself and it's the same God and it's the same you, but through prayer, you've changed yourself. God now looks at you a little differently as someone else. That's our hishtadlus in life. How is it that we can get God to see us in a better way? If just Hashem knows us who we are, but when Hashem sees that we are actually evolving and changing and developing, and that's how prayer operates. The great medieval Jewish philosopher Yosef Albo asked the question, how can anyone really pray? And think about it. God has a certain decree. God has willed a certain reality into existence right? And I'm now praying that God should change his mind. God decided something is going to be. It's going to be. Who the heck am I or you to ask God to change his mind? God knows all of the factors and he realizes this is what the reality needs to be. You and I see a little glimpses that we don't have the whole picture and we tell God to change it. No. Valbo says, the only thing you're changing when you're praying is you. And when you change you, you change your reality because you're no longer the same person you are after you pray than you were before you prayed. So the reality is the same, but God is now going to evaluate you differently because you're no longer the you you were before you prayed. You're different, and therefore your situation is different. You're not changing the external circumstances of the world. The only thing we can change, my friends, is ourselves. Medrash tells us about Rabbi Hanina who wished more than anything to give something when he lived during the days of the temple. He wanted to donate something to the temple. And he was poor, and he came across an impressive-looking stone, and he thought it would make a very fitting donation to God's home in Jerusalem, to the temple, the Beit HaMikdash. But the stone size and weight made it impossible for him to carry alone, so he tried hiring workers to lift the stone, to bring it to Jerusalem. And for such a stone, the price for lifting and transporting was more than he could afford. At that moment, five workers come by, offered to transport the stone on the condition that he put his hands under the stone and help them carry and lift it himself. He bends down, he puts his hands under the stone, he's ready to lift it, and suddenly, miraculously, him and these five men are in Yerushalayim, excuse me, he himself is miraculously transported to Jerusalem and the five guys he hired are nowhere to be found. Now these were no ordinary individuals according to the Midrash, but these were angels we believe sent by God who saw Rebbe Chanina's pure desire to give to the temple. Now, if the men were really angels in disguise sent by God, then why was it necessary for him to put his hands underneath the stone? This whole thing is one big miracle from God, get transported, uh, telecommunicated uh, transport. What is that thing they do on Star Trek? 
then why does he have to put his hand under the stone? And the answer is very simple, because yes, of course God's running the show, but he wants us to be involved, to devote our sincere efforts and our energies, and then we get the blessing for our efforts. Hashem says, I will help you and reward your sincere efforts, but you have to put your hands under the stone. We have to roll up our sleeves and put in the real work, because God created us. We believe in the Ramchal, Rabbeinu Moshe Chaim Lutzato, a great Italian Jewish philosopher of the 1700s, wrote this that every person's life predicament is their challenge because God put us into a world where he wanted us to build and work on ourselves. So I've always called this world, the world, it's like the gym, and the next world is like the big schwitz. What do you do? You go to the gym, you work out, you, you, um, and then you enjoy yourself. You sit in the whirlpool, you sit in the sauna afterwards. But this is the world where you build muscle. This is the world where you put in your hishtadlus, your initiative, your effort. And to the degree that you do that, we believe God will bless our efforts. We don't always see that blessing here and now. Rabbi Matisyahu Solomon said famously, we need to put less faith in our efforts and more efforts in our faith. We have to keep proper perspective and understand that our hands under the stone may not be able to move it anywhere that the only way we can get from point A to point B in life is through Hashem's assistance. But we only get that blessing when we operate, when we put our best foot forward. And, you know, the question, of course, is, well, how do I know what is my best foot forward? How do I know if I'm, I'm taking the right initiative? What's the answer, guys? I'll leave you a second to be able to post this on the Facebook chat here. How do we know if we're putting our best foot forward. Because I just developed this thesis here that success in life comes about from a combination of your own human initiative, hishtadlut, what we do, and chazdei Hashem, then God blesses it. How do you know if you're putting your best foot forward? How do you know? What is the guidebook God gave us to know how to put our best foot forward, how to do what's called hishtadlus in life? And who is that? Hey, my friend Michael Hollenberg is on. Long time to speak. Good to have you with us. What is it? That's the Torah. I don't mean to sound overly simplistic, but that's why God gave us the Torah. This is the Tanya. That's the Torah over there. <laughs> okay. God gave us the Torah as a guidebook as to how to operate in terms of our hishtadlus, our human initiative. What do I do in this situation? I asked the girl out, she didn't say yes. What do I do? Is the Torah can give me a little insight. Literally any situation, this covers moral and ethical questions and issues. Am I putting my best foot forward? Am I making the right decision? My parents want me to do this, but I don't think it's the right decision. I'm supposed to honor my parents. On the other hand, they don't know everything. What do I do in terms of my parents? A lot of us, a lot of people are living home with their families now. I have to deal with situations with my kids. We constantly consult the Torah for every question. So this whole discussion is bitachon, is placing your faith in Hashem. But Hashem also wants us to have faith in ourselves and to take the right step. And he gives us a guidebook. And it's not always clear. Hashem doesn't want us to be robots. It's not like I could just look up, oh, page 23, the Bible will tell you exactly what to do in that situation. Yeah, there's certain things that are black and white, but much of life is gray. 
and much of the Torah doesn't speak directly and exactly to our situation. What you have to do is start becoming a Torah scholar. And what is a Torah scholar? A Torah scholar is someone who's not just a scholar, a master of texts. It's someone who has a sense, a keen sense, for what the Torah wants from us in that given situation. What does the Torah want me to do in this situation in my life now? I'm going to graduate school, I'm juggling this thing, I have this situation with my parent. How do I do it? I've got the, the corona thing, how much do I dis... Like all of these things, what are, what are my values? Because it all comes down to your values. And the values are found in the Torah, and that's how we perform our hishtadlis, our human initiative, putting our best foot forward. That's why it's so important to have a mentor. So important to have a teacher who can help you look into the Torah and figure out the best next step for you. And then once you do that, bitachon, trust. Because we don't run the show, my friends. We don't run the show. And if God ever sent us a message that we don't run the show, it is during this period of corona when something that's microscopic and we can't even see be seen by the naked eye is wreaking havoc on the world and telling us that we can't control everything. We can only control what we can control. Nina is asking a question. Nina, so good to hear from you. Hope you're well. Uh, also, Stephanie, if you did everything in your power to do your best, good. Nina is asking, you put all your efforts to reach what you aim, but meanwhile you pray that no unforeseen obstacles appear. Good. That's another reason why we pray. We're saying to Hashem, first of all, we pray for so many reasons. Number one, God, bless me with the right decision-making ability. I need your guidance in Hashem so I have clarity. You know what the first request we make in our Shemona Esrei every day, Shacharis, Mincha, and Marev, morning prayers, afternoon prayers, and evening prayers, the first thing we ask from God, Atachonein ladam da'at um lamed le'enosh binah, God, you bestow knowledge and wisdom on, upon mortal beings. Please bestow upon us these different forms of knowledge and wisdom. We're asking Hashem, help us make the right decision. Help us do our hishtadlut, our human initiatives in the best possible way. And once we do that, we then daven to Hashem. Hashem, please take care of the rest. Because I can't do the whole thing. God's not going to do the whole thing, and you can't do the whole thing. It's literally a partnership. That's the way Judaism believes. God set up the world. You put in the, your best foot forward. How do you know what the best foot forward is? That is found in the Torah. It's not always clear, and that's why we need mentors and teachers, and we have to study as much as we can. And then the rest is up to Hashem. And there's nothing else I can do about it. And, and my friends, this is a very freeing thought. Because once you feel like you've done the best you can, there's nothing else you can do. You don't have to worry anymore. There's so much worrying. I speak to myself as I speak to you. I'm always worrying. Did I put my best foot forward? And that's okay. To have a little worry, it keeps you honest. Keeps you growing and it prevents you from being arrogant. But too much worrying. You want to be confident knowing you did the best thing by asking yourself one simple question. Is this what Hashem would want from me? Is this what God wants from me? Now, how do you know? Last time I checked, and last time I prayed, I do, we, my family, we do a lot of davening. This is Mizrach East. You know, we pray. We don't hear really God saying back. 
Uh, by the way, I know you have this test tomorrow. You need to study like this. You need to do that. I know you have this conflict at work. You, need, you, know, you don't hear that. But you do hear wisdom through the Torah. God speaks to us. We speak to God through prayer, but God does answer us through the Torah and through our own ability to decipher the Torah and delve into the Torah's principles of life, that's how we find out what God wants. What does God want from me here? What does God want my hishtadlus, my initiative to be in this given situation? Once I'm convinced that's what God wants, and sometimes you can't get the answer, you need to call a rabbi, and it's not because the rabbi looks into your soul. The rabbi looks into the Torah and looks into your soul as much as possible and says, I think this is what the Torah would demand of you in this given situation. And that's the way we know what God wants from us in any given situation. And then we say, you know what? I just did what I think, based on my teachers and my understanding of Judaism, of Torah, what God wants from me, the rest is in Hashem's hands. And that should be a zuchus. That should be a merit that since we're trying to follow what Hashem wants, then God's going to give it his blessing. Why would God give something a blessing that is going against what he wants? If God made something clear in the Torah that we're not supposed to engage in certain kind of activity and we do it anyway, and God then, and we want God to bless it, why would Hashem bless it? He made it clear. Now, sometimes it's not so clear, as I say. But as long as we are using our minds, consulting our mentors and teachers and consulting God's Torah, and we come up with an answer based on that, we should expect, please God, that Hashem's bracha will be there. We may not always see that bracha. And that's also the challenge. Sometimes we do the right thing and we are ishtadlis. It comes out of our understanding of what the Torah wants us to do in a given situation. And, and it doesn't seem like God blesses it. How do we understand that? And the simple answer is it's because we don't always see the whole picture. We often do not see the whole picture in life. I liken it to walking into a pitch black room with a flashlight. You walk into a pitch black room and you have a flashlight. And what does a flashlight do? It illuminates a certain part of the room, but only the part of the room that you're shining the flashlight on. Now, if you could flick the lights on and see everything, great. But life is not always like that. Life is often groping around in the dark, trying to figure out our way around with a flashlight. That flashlight's the Torah. But we can only see, we're only privy to a certain part of it. God sees the whole picture. Think of it like you're hiking a mountain. And you're schwitzing and you're hiking and, you know, you're there in the valley and you're going up the mountain. You can't, it's very hard to tell where you are in relation to everything else. But imagine you're in a helicopter and you're above, and you can see the whole picture from above. You have a certain perspective that the person hiking in the valley below does not have. That's the perspective God has always. Of all the worlds, of the world we live in, of the Messianic era, of the time of resurrection, of the world to come, God sees everything at the same time. God, we believe, sees you and me in our mother's wombs. We talked about... <laughs> our mother's wombs before. He sees us right now having this conversation, this class, this discussion with each other, this Facebook talk, and he sees us after 120 in the grave. It's all happening at the same time, and it's everything. It's all encompassing. We believe that God is omnipotent. 
He's all-powerful and he's omniscient and he's all-knowing. And that's where our faith comes in too, that when something, God forbid, happens, that is not good, God forbid. And we did all the right things. I don't understand. I prayed, I followed what the rabbi said I should do, and it still doesn't seem to be blessed by God. And then we chalk that up so that there's a bigger picture to which we are not fully privy. That's hard. I'm not saying that's easy. And the greatest struggle with why bad things happen to good people, I touched on this yesterday. So this is a really, really important idea. I want to let, just end off with one or two more points. Rabbi Dr. Tversky, an amazing rabbi and psychiatrist, expert on addiction, said, our decisions aren't good and bad based on the outcome, but they're, they're good and bad based on how we went about making the decision. And I'm arguing again that using Torah and mitzvah to make your decisions in life helps us make wiser decisions because A, we're tapping into the, the divine wisdom and also we increase the likelihood of God blessing that decision because it's consistent with the values that God gave us in his beautiful Torah. Two last points. Number one, everything that happens, happens for a reason. Really important to remember. The first word of Parshat Vayikra, the book of the Torah that we just finished, is spelled with a small aleph, and the Balhaturim says that Moshe wanted to leave out the aleph and write the word Vayikar, which means that God happened to speak to Moshe. But Moshe Rabbeinu, in his great humility, did not want to attract honor that God specifically called out to him. He wanted to make it seem as if it just happened that God called to him. But God did not agree and instructed Moshe to write the letter Aleph because God doesn't just randomly speak. Nothing that happens in this world is random. That's the first thing to keep in mind, that every action and every event is shaped by God. And it is this lesson that also helps to strengthen our bitachon. Because the last thing we want to ever believe is that just stuff is happening for no rhyme or reason. I don't know why Corona broke out, but it is part of a bigger picture. And I would never, God forbid, tell anyone who's been stricken with this, you know, but we have to ask ourselves, how are we growing from this situation? Because it happened for some reason, even if you and I don't know what that reason is. And lastly, when we don't see, because we don't see the whole picture, and we just get a little glimpse, try to remember that you and I are mortal, finite beings. And we're only privy to a piece of the picture. And there's a bigger picture out there. And when things don't go our way, it doesn't mean God has abandoned us. It doesn't mean God doesn't like us and God is punishing us. It may simply mean that it was necessary for something else to take place and to happen. I truly believe in that. It's hard to feel it at the time. We'll... But as long as we kind of stick to this formula that we are believers, but being a believer doesn't mean you put all your faith in God. You put a lot of your faith in Judaism and yourself. And that's why we believe in ourselves. And we start our day, I've said this so many times, with the Moda'ani, where we say at the end, Moda'ani lefanecha, I thank you, God, for getting me up. Shechazarta bi nishmati, that you return my soul within me. Rabba menatecha, great is your faith in me, Hashem.
God woke us up because he believed that you and I will fulfill our potential and our purpose for that day. If not, then there was no reason for us to have another day in this beautiful world. If we're here, it's because we're capable of fulfilling our purpose and our mission. Look into the Torah to help figure out your hishtadlut. How does God want you to take the next step? And once you've done it, and you feel within reason, I'm using that word within reason because I'm speaking to myself because you could drive yourself crazy. I could do more, I could do more, I could do more. I could always do more, but within reason. Once you've done and you put your best foot forward, then you have bitachon. You pray to Hashem that He blesses. And that's really my bracha to all of you. And that is, my bracha is that you have the strength to do the right hishtadlis and to make decisions in the best possible way using the Torah as a guide. And that is a zuchut, is a merit for all of us to get all of our dreams and aspirations to be blessed by Hashem because the way we went about our hishtadlis is by following God. So therefore, God would only want to bless that. And to then have a little breather and say, I did the best I could. That's all that's really possible. That's all God can ever expect. And that's all any of us can expect of ourselves is to put our best foot forward. Do your initiative and the Hashem should bless us with all of the blessings of good health and of everything that we want out of life in the, on the everyday basis and in terms of our major life goals and aspirations. Hashem should bless all of us and never give up when we don't get what we want. Never give up. Hashem doesn't give up on you. And don't imagine for a minute, I said this to somebody yesterday, fortunately, a dear friend, supportive MGE who lost her, Father, we say to someone, that God should comfort you. And why do we refer to God as this place, a place? Because when a person loses a loved one, they often think that God cannot be found in their place anymore. God has taken off. God is abandoned. There's no such thing. God never leaves us. Hashem is always here. We sometimes don't feel his presence when things don't go our way. But we should never for a moment imagine that Hashem has left. I shared this yesterday and I'll conclude with this. When Rabbi Soloveitchik's wife became ill and he said that he could not feel God in the whitewashed, sterile walls of the hospital when he would sit with his wife when she was ill. But he'd come home at night and he'd pray to God and he would feel God's hand, so to speak, on his shoulder. That God had not abandoned him. That God was with him. That God is always with us. And to the degree that we can access the wisdom of the Torah and to feel as much of Hashem in our lives, always, Hashem is with us. Hashem only created us for the greatest possible good. Hashem wants only the very best. May God bless you and continue to be with you. Hashem is always with you. Er Hashem Panavi Lecha Vichuneka, as we say in the Burkat Koanim, that God should continue to shine His countenance upon you and to bless you. Have a beautiful day, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.